This is episode 162 of That Shakespeare Life. Do you have a question about the life of William Shakespeare you think would make a great episode? Now inside the members area, you can suggest show ideas, submit questions directly to our guests, and unlock exclusive access to our entire Shakespeare history library of lesson plans, worksheets, history guides, early modern game tutorials, and more when you become a member of That Shakespeare Life. Explore the best Shakespeare club ever at castycash.com slash member, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Peter Wilson, author of Europe's Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The snake sent gaze and his normal defensive qualities of, uh, of this snake were magnified and turned into deadly the qualities of the basilisk. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Elizabethan England, the basilisk was a feared and hateful creature, capable of killing someone with just a glance. Of the eight references to basilisks in Shakespeare's plays, half of these invoke the reputation of being able to kill with a look. European bestiaries record the basilisk as a legendary serpent ruling as king of the reptiles, and while the folklore far outpaces the science, recent historical studies of animals from Elizabethan England reveal that the basilisk may have been a term applied to a real snake that made its home across northern Europe when Shakespeare was writing about basilisks in his plays. Our guest this week is author of The Grass Snake and the Basilisk, a research project that takes a historical perspective on how the specific attributes of human life in Elizabethan England created an ideal home for the grass snake, an animal who defends itself with a death-like gaze. We are pleased to welcome Rob Lenders to the show this week to explain the history of the real animal Shakespeare called a basilisk. Rob Lenders works at the Department of Environmental Science at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He does research on historical references for nature restoration. Being trained in animal ecology, he has a special interest in vertebrates, especially fish, amphibians, and reptiles. Although he's primarily looking for quantitative data on the occurrence and abundance of these species, during his research, he regularly comes across very interesting qualitative information about these animal groups that invite him to reconstruct the role that animals played in people's lives. He believes that these narratives are perhaps even more powerful than the scientific reconstructions of physical reality. They offer us a fantastic insight into the relationship that our ancestors had with the natural world. And we are delighted to have him here with us this week to share just that research into the grass snake and the basilisk for Shakespeare. Hello, Rob. Welcome to the show. Pliny the Elder is considered one of the first authors to write about the basilisk, identifying the snake as, quote, no more than a foot long with a bright white spot on its head like a diadem, end quote. In his work, Rob cites, quote, recent claims that the basilisk should be identified as a cobra or king cobra, end quote. Rob, how did your research use references like that from Pliny the Elder to determine the basilisk was a grass snake instead of some other creepy creature like a cobra? 
that's a very difficult question to start with, I would say. Well, Pliny states that uh, the, the basilisk originally lived uh, somewhere in Libya, which does not concur with the present distribution of the grass snake. That, however, uh, is, uh, is also not the most important point to be made here, I think, because I think early Christian thinkers and writers were looking for arguments to discredit uh, the grass snake. And uh, after all, this snake played an important role in the pre-Christian's beliefs, representing uh, a people's forebears and being gods of fertility, etc. And this could not be reconciled with the dogmas of the church. And in Pliny's description of the basilisk, one found that that argument, the king of snakes, very deadly and looking as if the animal wore a crown, and that suited the, the grass snake perfectly. I think that's the main reason that Pliny is talking about. Uh, in his paper, Rob talks about how one of the defining features of a basilisk is its ability to play dead. In figure one from his paper, which we'll link you to in the show notes for today's episode, so you can see it too, is a grass snake with what Rob describes as a, quote, staring gaze. Rob, this snake's visual presentation is truly creepy. I was impressed with this picture that's included there is this ability to create a staring gaze one reason Shakespeare and his contemporaries thought the snake was a mythical basilisk yeah well, well, well to start with I, have, I don't think that the grass snake or any other snake for that reason is creepy uh, I'm an oh I I apologize to the snakes in general <laughs> because they are most fascinating creatures and uh, and the joy to study really well, at the time of uh, Shakespeare, the basilisk was uh, already well known uh, to people, so to say, uh, because the, the creature featured in uh, many bestiaries, um, so medieval encyclopedias uh, of the 12th to 16th century. And those were immensely popular throughout uh, Europe. And it was uh, also not only uh, his gaze that defined the grass snake uh, as the basilisk, but also its uh, allegedly deadly breath or smell its hissing, and of course, the crown that it wore as the king of snakes, uh, which is actually a yellow ring around the neck of the grass snake. Another attribute of the grass snake Rob identifies in his paper is the historical dependency on dung for the grass snake. Given the prevalence of dung in early modern England, not just a lack of sanitation, but through jobs like gong farmers who collected piles of dung that would have been stacked around England, there would have been many ideal habitats for the grass snake around England in Shakespeare's lifetime. Rob, are these dung heaps where people would have encountered grass snakes? And do you think the the gross nature of the dung heap itself added to the reputation of the grass snake of being a basilisk? Well, dung heaps are most certainly the places where people encounter these, these grass snakes. But I seriously doubt whether at Shakespeare's time, these dung heaps were so gross to people. Because at that time, dung had been crucial for fertilizing arable land for centuries already. And in fact, that was probably already the case in the Neolithic, so the, the, the late Stone Age. And I also think that uh, here the origin lies of the worship of the grass snake in pre-Christian beliefs, since dung was associated with both fertility and the grass snake. If people owned many cattle, for instance, uh, there was also much valuable dung for fertilizing arable lands, but there would also be many grass snakes present. So grass snakes would be associated with wealth and prosperity. 
Rob's work contains a list of several archaeological sites where the remains of grass snakes have been discovered and concludes, quote, that grass snakes co-inhabitated human settlements more often than other snake species, end quote. Rob, what were the themes across these archaeological finds that led you to believe contact with grass snakes by humans was a common occurrence? And does that frequency of contact mean it would be reasonable to think Shakespeare was familiar with the actual creature of the grass snake as he was writing about basilisks in his plays, as opposed to only referencing some myth or legend that we associate today with basilisk? Well, it certainly cannot be excluded that Shakespeare must have known the grass snake. That depends a little bit on where he was exactly uh, growing up and uh, living. Because the grass snake can be found wherever dung piles and water with sufficient prey are in reasonable proximity to each other. This may well be in the suburbs of, uh, of large cities, uh, even nowadays. Grass snakes can be found in the suburbs of, uh, of Amsterdam. However, this in no way implies that Shakespeare uh, must have made the link between the grass snake and the basilisk. Because already by the late Middle Ages, most writers and other scholars uh, had completely lost the link between the two species. Although uh, a contemporary of uh, Shakespeare, Topsel, uh, writer of the book The History of Serpents, did see the similarity between them. Despite being known as a creature who could kill with just a look, not everyone held the basilisk in contempt. Rob writes that the grass snake was not poisonous and that some farmers saw the grass snake as a sign of protection for their livestock. Rob, you alluded to this earlier when you talked about fertilizer being seen as a valuable asset for farms. But when the basilisk wasn't killing with a glance, what attributes did the grass snake have to make it a sign of protection in the minds of Elizabethan farmers? Yeah. 19th century stories from the Baltic uh, stage teachers, farmers were, and uh, also probably during the time of Shakespeare, were perfectly aware that grass snakes were completely harmless. Christian writers completely exaggerated the harmless qualities of the grass snake to give shape and form to the basilisk, so to say. The the snake's sense, gaze, and his normal defensive qualities of, uh, of this snake were magnified and turned into deadly the qualities of, uh, of, of the basilisk. However, the most important positive characteristic of the grass snake, its connection with dung and thus with prosperity, was uh, translated into the birth of the basilisk in the dung leaf. Rob writes about a 16th century Swedish bishop, Olaus Magnus, who forbade the practice of worshipping a grass snake across Scandinavia. Interestingly, not because the worship of something other than God was forbidden, but specifically because the grass snake in particular was viewed as the kind of snake who had, quote, seduced Adam, equating the grass snake with, quote, number one enemy of the one and only heavenly God, end quote. Rob, this reference comes close to Shakespeare's lifetime, but for Elizabethan England, was the basilisk also seen as a sign of evil or condemned? by Christianity specifically? Certainly. There was no deadlier animal than the basilisk. And everything that was aimed at uh, tempting men to deny God was attributed to this this basilisk. Uh, The animal was the antichrist in person, you could say. By as late as 1520, Rob writes that the basilisk was specifically identified by its horrible breath considered to be poisonous. Now, we know this isn't true of the actual grass snake, but Rob, was the real grass snake known for smelly breath? Now, anyone who has ever tried to catch a grass snake has probably experienced that grass snakes can be very smelly. Although it's not its breath, but uh, that stinks, 
But as soon as you succeed in catching a, a grass snake, its defense mechanisms is to pour the entire contents of its intestines over you. Oh, that's and, so disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that's why it stank. <laughs> yeah. This is such a, a, a penetrating smell uh, that you can still smell it after uh, several days, no, no matter how long you wash yourself. So the, the, the grass snake is also one of the few reptiles which can be, in fact, identified by, by smell. In some circumstances, you can simply smell that a grass snake has been present in a particular place. So it is smelly, yes. Historically, the philosopher's stone, the alchemical key to creating gold, came in two forms. Falstaff draws attention to the two versions of the philosopher's stone when he says, quote, I'll make him a philosopher's two stones to me, end quote. That comes from Henry IV, part two. The first version was a white stone used to make silver, while the second and more valuable was the red stone used to make gold. Rob writes in his work that the basilisk's eggs were, quote, used to produce a white philosopher's stone, end quote. Rob, how was the basilisk eggs considered useful to the production of the philosopher's stone yeah i'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that but uh, the, the the recipe for the philosopher's stone is unknown to me to be <laughs> i thought you were going to give us a big secret there <laughs> i'm sorry yeah and i also would not know how to get hold of real basilisk eggs because they simply don't exist i only know that it was considered a, a crucial ingredient to produce the, the philosopher's stone do you know if people in Shakespeare's lifetime would gather up grass snakes or hunt for basilisk eggs in grass snake nests or something to try and use them for this purpose? No, I don't think so. First thing is, of course, that the basilisk doesn't exist. So where do you have to look for its, for its eggs? Secondly, who would go looking for the world's deadliest animal to try and steal its eggs? You must be crazy to do that, right? <laughs> I suppose so. It wouldn't be something I'd sign up to do. Along with mentioning the basilisk eight times, Shakespeare mentions the cockatrice four times across his works, referring to the cockatrice the same way he refers to the basilisk as having a, quote, dead-killing eye, as he says in Rape of Lucrece. And Toby Belch in Twelfth Night says that, quote, they will kill one another by the look, like cockatrices, end quote. Rob's work examines several medieval and post-medieval works dating through the 17th century that significantly overlap and intertwine the cockatrice with the basilisk, suggesting the two creatures might be the same thing. Rob, what did your research reveal about the relationship between the basilisk and the cockatrice? Apparently, there, uh, there came a time when the, the image of a basilisk, which was, after all, seemingly a fairly normal snake, was no longer terrifying enough. And an even more uh, repulsive creature had to be invented, so to say. And since there had already been stories about the basilisk being born from the eggs laid by a rooster, an animal that is also often depicted as standing on a dung heap. And nothing seemed more logical than to create this creature, uh, which was a sort of a hybrid between, uh, between the snake and the rooster. In this way, I think that the cockatrice was, uh, was born. The cockatrice is a combination of a rooster and a snake, and Rob's work identifies an illustration of the basilisk from 1640 that is just this 
combination. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for today's episode so you can see the image yourself. Rob, this rooster snake combination is truly a horrifying image, as you say. They invented something that does intimidate even to look at the picture today. But the engraving shows these creatures as a hybrid. And that same man who did the engraving created a second image, also of a basilisk the same year, that looks much closer to what you would think of as a regular snake. Rob's work also identifies engravers like Matthaus Marion in the 17th century, who depict the basilisk as a grass snake with exaggerated features, suggesting again that the basilisk and cockatrice were the cultural definition for a real creature. And while they may have had fantastic attributes given to them by superstition or religion, it was ultimately just a snake. Rob, based on your research, what then would you suggest for us to have in mind about Shakespeare's understanding of the grass snake when we see basilisks and cockatrices in Shakespeare's plays? How real were these creatures as Shakespeare invoked their reputation for his performances? Yeah, I think that, that by Shakespeare's time, uh, people had long lost the original connection between the grass snake and the basilisk. Uh, and I think for most ordinary people, uh, they were two completely different creatures by then. That does not mean that the basilisk was not real in their perception. However, the, I think that the better, the, the better educated uh, were probably aware of the uh, imaginary mythical status of the basilisk. But uh, uh, we also have known what uh, effect the mention of the basilisk or the cockatrice must have had on their audience, evoking a feeling of fear. That's, I think, why they, they, they use these images. I know we would love to explore the grass snake, the basilisk, and cockatrices more. In addition to your research that we'll link to in the show notes for today's episode, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, well, to be honest, I don't think there is a good book yet about the basilisk and the cockatrice. But more generally, uh, there are a number of books that uh, I would recommend if someone is interested in the historical relationship between humans and animals on a cultural or even a metaphysical uh, level. Uh, there are interesting books uh, like Alexander Pluskovsky's uh, Wolves and the Wilderness in the Middle Ages, Dolly Jurgensen, Recovering Lost Species in a Modern Age, and uh, Michael Bindley's and uh, Thomas Williams's uh, Representing Beasts in uh, Early Medieval England and Scandinavia. And there's also Nerissa Russell's book, Social Zooarchaeology, Uh, which is very much worth reading. These are excellent places to start. We'll link to these books along with Rob's work in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you hop over there after the episode to make sure you get that and all of the images that we've mentioned in today's interview. Rob, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, I'd... uh... Definitely, this would be Terence White's book, Arthur, The Once and Future King, no doubt about it. That is a great choice. And actually, I don't think I've had anyone on the show make that selection for their Desert Island book yet. And I think you would be well set up with that for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm I'm currently working on a great deal of historical uh, relationships between animals and uh, and humans, including species like sturgeon. Uh, wild horses, tree frogs, rats, and salmon, and especially the the, the mythical anecdote that uh, servants in the in in history used to have it in their contracts that they only had to eat salmon a limited number of times a week is particularly uh, challenging to me at the moment. So I'm working on that. 
That sounds exciting and fun. Well, Rob Lenders, thank you so much for being here with us this week and walking us through the history of the grass snake and the basilisk and the cockatrice as we explore the life of William Shakespeare. It's been fun talking with you. My pleasure. As promised, over in the show notes, you can see images of the grass snake, including the yellow ring around its neck that makes it look like it's wearing a crown, an engraving of that wild rooster-snake combination drawn in 1640, and even the staring gaze of the basilisk that grass snakes are well known for. Find all the images as well as links to Rob's work and the resources he recommends all packed into today's show notes at castycash.com slash episode 162. That's castycash.com slash EP162. Don't forget that the streaming version of our episode today is available for free on YouTube. Find that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you'd like all the video content of our show, including animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Along with our digital streaming app, we have history activity kits, worksheets, diagrams, illustrated history guides, and behind-the-scenes access where you can submit questions to be asked live on the air. It's the best Shakespeare club ever. And you can join us inside today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.